Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 125, and we're going to talk about octane, which basically translates to what kind of gasoline you should put in your engine, and it's not simple, unfortunately. We're also going to talk about Starlink and their new RV-friendly product, a tale from the road involving Jesus, and a resource recommendation that, well, isn't one. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I apologize for not having an episode last week. I couldn't talk. I had a bad health week and I needed to take a week off. And I realized that that's two weeks I've taken off in relatively short succession here. And I apologize for that. I also apologize to folks who have written to me. I have been a poor correspondent lately and I apologize. But rather than apologize, what I should do is actually thank you for your patience. And no, what I actually should do is just kind of get off my butt and get this stuff done. And in that spirit, we're going to have a podcast right now. So this started on Facebook where people were asking about what the different ratings on gas pumps meant and, you know, should they put E85 in their engine and all this stuff. And this, this is the kind of stuff that when I'm on the road and I see it, I get curious about it and look it up. So I've actually done a fair amount of research on what all this stuff means. And it's kind of important because you can actually damage your engine if you put the wrong stuff in. And there's nothing on the pump that's going to tell you, why no, this isn't for your engine. So I'm going to give you a quick rundown of what all it means without getting too terribly technical, because honestly, once we get to a certain point, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And we're not going to talk about diesel here because diesel is, there are various types of diesel and such, and you do have to use the right kind, but generally there's only going to be one available wherever you are. So you're not going to have to make much of a choice. If you're looking for diesel, you can ignore cetane. That isn't going to matter. What you want is ultra low sulfur diesel number two with no biodiesel if you can help it. That's your goal. But again, you're just going to have to take what they have. Gasoline, we always have a bunch of choices. And now there are more choices than ever. It used to be you could get leaded and high test or whatever. You'd have basically two choices. Now it's all over the place. And it varies where you are in the country. This is something that confused me when I first started traveling coast to coast, was that as you go up in altitude, the octane ratings change. And we're just going to talk about all that. So first off, what is octane? Octane is a a chemical designation of the kinds of molecules in the gas. It doesn't matter that we understand that, and that's good because I couldn't explain it. But what it means for us, the consumer, the driver, is that the lower the number, the lower the pressure at which the gasoline will explode. And while that sounds like a good thing, it's actually not because in an engine, a gasoline internal combustion engine, you want to increase compression so that when you add the spark, you'll get the most power out of the gasoline. And if the gasoline explodes at a low compression, maybe even before that spark plug goes off, that's bad. And you may have heard the term knocking and pinging. Well, what's happening there is the gasoline is exploding before the engine tells it to. And that messes up your timing and all the computers and everything. And it's basically bad. 
So you want to use the right octane rating for your vehicle. And if you look in the owner's manual, it will tell you this vehicle is rated for this octane. Now, little tiny engines and sports car type engines tend to want higher octane. So while you get your basic Ford vehicle, it's probably going to be fine with 87 octane. If you got like a Jaguar or my old Land Rover, those wanted at least 91 or 92 octane. And again, higher is better because you can increase the compression in the engine to get the most power out of the gasoline. But it costs more money to make gasoline with higher octane, so higher octane costs more. And generally, most pumps in the U.S., you will see three different kinds of gasoline. There'll be 87, 89, and 92, or something pretty close to that. Now, what in practice does this mean? Well, literally, do what your owner's manual says. But in modern engine, and that's anything in the last 20 years, there's a computer that will adjust things in your engine to get the most power of whatever gasoline you put in there. So if your owner's manual says you have to use 91, you can get away with 87. It isn't going to damage the engine. You'll have a little bit less power. And if you ever start to hear knocking and pinging, which are things that are, sound like what they are, then you know you need to add a little bit more octane. Now, that's basically it. You're not going to damage your engine by going too high, and these days you're not going to damage your engine by going too low, you're just going to get less performance. But things have gotten a lot more complicated than just that in recent years. We have introduced ethanol into our gasoline in the U.S. and in other parts of the world, and this is a complicated political thing. Basically, they take alcohol made from corn and wheat and all kinds of different things, mostly corn though, and mix it in with the gasoline because engines can burn a certain amount of alcohol mixed with gasoline. And normally, the normal gas you buy in the U.S. is E10, which means 10% ethanol. And there'll usually be a sticker on the pump that says up to 10% ethanol. Modern cars are designed to run on this. Now, you will find a lot of controversy about that. There are plenty of people who say you should never use any ethanol in your gas at all. It dries out seals. There's a bunch of things that they don't like about it. And I'm not here to disagree with them. I'm just trying to explain it to you so you can make your decisions. Now, in some parts of the country now, particularly down south, and I've noticed this more out west, you can get ethanol-free gasoline. And it's usually 88 octane for some reason. I'm not sure why they've pinned it at 88. But you will go to a pump, and you can actually see 87 octane and 88 octane, and then another 88 octane. And if you read them, you will realize that the more expensive one is the one that's just pure gasoline. Now, in reality, that pure gasoline is best for older engines and race engines, like if you have a go-kart or something like that, or even a boat, that would be good for that. Or a two-stroke engine that you're going to mix with oil. Sure, don't get the ethanol stuff if you can help it, because ethanol actually attracts water. It is hygroscopic, and that's one of the big complaints about it. Okay. I hope I didn't confuse you there, but that's basically it. You've got the three types of gasoline, and then sometimes you'll find the gasoline without ethanol. Here's the super complex part. There is another kind of gasoline that you will find mostly in places with lots of grain, although I have seen it in Las Vegas. It's called E85. This is the stuff you can get into real trouble with. E85 means it's 85% ethanol. It's ethanol with a little bit of gasoline mixed into it. 
It only works in vehicles that say flex fuel on them. Now, a lot of Chrysler products have this. A lot of Chrysler minivans, if you look on the back, you'll see flex fuel. They can run on E85. And why would you want to do this? Well, because it's always the cheapest gasoline available because it's mostly ethanol and not gas. But you do get lower gas mileage with it. So you would have to experiment to see if that savings is worth it or not. Those engines are designed to run on that, so you're fine. However, if you put E85 in a normal engine, it's going to really, really struggle to run. It's just not set up for that much ethanol. If that ever happens to you and you get a tank of gasoline and the engine's running really poorly and you think, oh no, I may have put E85 in, the thing to do is to add high test, that is high octane gasoline, as soon as you can. You basically want to dilute that stuff as much as you can. So stop, fill the tank up again, drive for 50 miles, fill it up again, keep doing that until that E85 is diluted by either high octane gasoline or best gasoline without any ethanol at all. That is important because all that ethanol in a gasoline engine is bad. All right, one last thing, <laughs> just to make things even more complicated. Because of high gas prices, there are political moves to change E10 to E15. That is, add more ethanol to the normal gasoline we all use. Now, these engines were designed to run on E10 in most cases. And so there are people who are concerned that by adding 5% more ethanol, you're going to have problems. And, you know, you might. I've seen a whole lot of talk about this and how E15 is going to damage engines. And honestly, I don't think we've had enough time to see what the results are going to be. But my advice is to avoid it if you can. If you have a choice between E10 and E15, get the E10. I'm really concerned, though, that if E15 becomes the norm, you're not going to know what you're putting in there. This is similar to the problem I have with diesel. I can go to a gas station that says diesel number two, whatever the price is, and when I get to the pump, sometimes I'll notice it says up to 15% biodiesel, which the maker of my engine, Mercedes-Benz, says will damage my engine. And yet, I have no choice at least here in Illinois, because that's all that's available. And sometimes it's not even labeled on the pump, so I don't know what I'm getting. I fear we may be getting there with E15. And one more confusing thing. If you are in higher altitudes, you will notice that the octane ratings all shift down. For example, if you go to Denver, Colorado, the normal cheapest gas is going to be 85 octane E10. And that is not going to be available, say, in Boston. That's because at higher altitudes, there's less air pressure, and that compression problem where the gasoline detonates too early is lessened. So you can get away with running lower octane gas. Basically, your engine doesn't need as fancy gas as high altitudes to solve this compression problem. Of course, your engine has other problems at high altitude, which is basically getting enough air into the engine, but that's on the engineers. So if you are driving across country and you go to Denver and you look at the gas pump and you're like, well, wait a minute, why do they have 85 here? And I didn't see that in Chicago. It is actually okay to drop from your normal 87 down to 85 while you're driving around at that altitude. It should be fine. It's also fine just to pay a little bit more and get the 87 too. So bottom line, 
do what your owner's manual says. Don't worry too much about all the noise out there. And as far as ethanol is concerned, eh, I think we're going to find out about the E15 and we may not have a choice. But for now, E10 is probably fine for 99% of you. Tech Talk. Starlink is here! The great savior has come and will give us all internet if we're really wealthy and willing to put up with a lot of crap. <laughs> so folks, the Starlink is supposed to save us all, right? Because it is a constellation of low orbit satellites that provides internet basically anywhere on the planet. And they finally came out with their portable version, their RV version, which they allow you to use on the road and you don't have to have a permanent well, all right, you don't have to keep it at one address, which was one of the rules with the old system. So we're saved, right? All of our internet worries are over. Uncle Musk has done it. Eh, well, not quite yet. It's, it's, it's definitely a step, and this is going to be a good solution for some people. But there are problems with this thing. So first off, let's talk about how it works. You basically get this satellite dish that's rectangular. It, it's just like a rectangular, almost like a lap desk on a tripod. And you put it outside the van. You cannot use this while you're driving. Rule number one, it has to be just like on the ground by itself in one location. It can't move. And you hook up to it with your phone and you tell it where you are, and then it will move around and find the satellite and fine-tune itself, and bang, you've got high-speed internet. Okay, so you can't use it while you're driving, drawback number one. Number two, you have to set it up every time you stop. And number three, it needs a clear view of the sky. This is satellite, folks. It's just like the old days when you put a satellite dish on the roof of your house, and you're like, oh, that tree's in the way, let's move it over here, and oh, you know... You need clear line of sight. So if you're in a heavily forest area of the Pacific Northwest, you're going to have a hard time getting a signal. But okay, you've sorted through all that. You've got a signal. Now what? Well, now you've actually got a pretty good connection. It is true high speed. You're probably going to have over 100 gigabytes per second down and 10 gigabytes up at least. And I've seen much higher speeds than that. There are a lot of factors that affect that, such as... All the factors that affect your satellite TV, if you have one. Heavy storms will kill your internet. Snow will be a big problem, especially if you are somewhere where the dish is pointing straight up. And, of course, there is the cat problem, if you haven't seen this. On cold days, these dishes will heat themselves up so snow will melt on them, and cats figure this out and will gather on your dish and just kind of sit on it just like it was a laptop. So there's an unexpected problem you could have. <laughs> Maybe you'll have some other wildlife on there. I mean, you could have like a squirrel party or something something. Okay, all that's great. And here's the really bad thing. Costs more. You're looking at 135 bucks or so per month plus $600 in hardware cost to get the Starlink RV system. There is one bit of good news though. You can turn it off and on as much as you want. So if you're the kind of person that'll go out for a month and then be home for three months and go out for another month, you can actually turn it off for those months you're not using it and not pay, or you pay a small maintenance fee. So that's nice. That is a good thing. But 135 bucks a month is fairly pricey. So who is Starlink for? 
I think it's for folks who are going to go and sit in one place for a while. Like if you're the kind of person who's going to move from BLM to BLM at two weeks at a time using up your allotment, yeah, I think this could work great. And while it's 135 bucks a month and that sounds expensive, that's for unlimited high-speed internet. And sure, I can get that in Chicago for half the price, but in the middle of the desert where there's no cell phone service, this is a game changer. So I'm not completely down on Starlink. I don't think it is the promise that we were all hoping for, that everybody could have really easy, fast, inexpensive internet. But it's a step. We're getting there. And if you budget for it, you can reliably have broadband internet basically anywhere in the world, so long as you're willing to take the time to set it up. And that is actually going to be a huge boon for many of us. Tales from the road. So I try not to talk too much about politics or religion on the show because we're talking about vans here and van lifers come in all different creeds and colors and beliefs and it's a big tent and I'm not trying to make it any smaller. But I do have a tale from the road that involves religion only because of this place I went to and I didn't even know I was going there. So bear with me. I'm going to tell you the story and you can think what you want from it. Now, you're familiar with Orlando, right? Home of all the amusement parks. You've got Disney World and Universal Studios and SeaWorld and all these other parks. But one of the parks that's there is the Holy Land experience. Or I should say was. Apparently, they just sold the place during COVID when they shut down, and it's going to become some sort of a hospital. <laughs> so you may have missed your chance to do the Holy Land experience, but that doesn't matter because I will always have this story. So it was about 2009, and I was with a couple of friends, and we decided to drive up from Fort Lauderdale, where we were working at the time, and just go to this Holy Land experience. And one of us in the group had been there before, and honestly, this is not something that interests me. This wasn't on my bucket list of places to go. I've been to the actual quote-unquote Holy Land. I don't need to see the Disney World, uh, their Disney-esque version of it. But okay, whatever. I'm always up for an adventure. So we get there, and we got there a little bit late. You know, normally when you go to an amusement park, you're going to go in the morning. We got there maybe noon, and uh, we couldn't figure out how to get in. <laughs> now, this this is a big complex. I mean, it's certainly not the size of Disney World, but it's, you know, maybe half the size of the Magic Kingdom. It's a pretty good-sized place. For some reason, we could not find the entrance. We drove around and around and finally found a door that was open, and we went in the door, and it was... The gift shop, a massive affair selling all kinds of religious things, as you would expect. You've got your basic t-shirts and your snow globes and things like that. And then relics, which probably were <laughs> almost assuredly were fakes, maps, prayers, all that kind of stuff. Expected. And we wandered around the gift shop hoping to find somebody to tell us like where we bought tickets and stuff. And we went through this other door and then suddenly... We're in the Holy Land experience. We had been transported to ancient Jerusalem by the looks of the place. And um, yeah, we never bought tickets. I don't know how we could have bought tickets. It wasn't that we were trying not to. There just wasn't a way to. So, okay, that was the start of this very odd experience. Now, as we wandered around, 
this was not the kind of amusement park that had like rides. There weren't any roller coasters or anything like that. There were experiences, and basically, there were little pieces of the New Testament built up. And there were even some characters from the New Testament. Like there was this woman, I think it was a woman, dressed up like a donkey who was a little bit creepy, but she would follow us around and wave at us. I, I, I don't, it was, it was odd. <laughs> there were a number of odd moments like this. We were three of us. There was one woman and two men, and we were never allowed to be out of sight of a staff member. And maybe it was because of how we were dressed. I mean, I dressed kind of boring, but the other people I were with were dressed kind of fashionable, maybe a little bit punky, you know, some leather and belts and things, nothing extreme. But I think maybe the people in the park knew that we were not their normal guests. So they kind of followed us around, often dressed up like animals or other biblical figures. Now, I've read the Bible, I recognized a lot of the stuff here, and I think most people would, because a lot of this has been absorbed into American culture as a whole. And I'm not going to go through all those things, because you can certainly look up the Holy Land experience yourself and see what it was about. But there were two specific events that happened here that were really, they stuck stuck with me. They, They were really a little bit disturbing. The first was when we were looking for a place to find some food, which was actually pretty difficult, And the male friend I was up there with came over and said, guys, guys, you've got to meet Jesus. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) let's go meet Jesus. And yeah, one of the characters was Jesus. I am not someone who's like a believer in the supernatural or anything like that, but this guy's charisma was off the charts. I don't know who he was actually, but in his role as European white Jesus, He gave off this aura of like, wow, you just wanted to be near this guy. You wanted to have his attention. You wanted his gaze upon you. I found it very creepy, but also fascinating because I have no idea what it was about this guy that just made you want to be near him. Now, I say this as a boring cishet white guy. This character was attractive, very, very strange, but not as strange as what happened to him as the day grew on. See, the entire Holy Land experience during the day is a little bit of a passion play. That is, they actually will play out the last days of Christ, and we were there for the scourge and the crucifixion. And not long after we met with him, he was taken away by Roman guards, or at least guys dressed up like Roman guards, or maybe the Star Trek version of Roman guards. I'm not sure how authentic they were. But they roughly grabbed Jesus, took him away, put a crown of thorns on his head, and then started dragging him through the streets while he was carrying this cross, and they were whipping him. Now, obviously, that's the story, right? But they're doing this with these whips that were made out of some kind of a yarn, I'd guess, dipped in this deep, rich red liquid. And so as they whipped him, blood would spray not only over him, but on any of the audience that happened to be nearby. And, you know, after a couple minutes, this turns into a parade, like there's a parade route and Jesus is coming down the middle of the route. And then there are people on the sides watching this and they're getting splashed with these little bits of blood water or whatever it was. 
And there was this little kid, he was maybe four or five, and he had an ice cream cone. And he was licking the ice cream cone, watching this man being whipped bloody with literal blood all over the street. And he's just like licking his ice cream cone and watching this like it was the most normal thing in the world. And I suppose for some people, this is a fairly normal thing. But for me, it was fairly horrific. (laughs) It did not give me any sense of holiness. It just gave me a sense of, holy cow, what is going on here? So they stopped whipping poor Jesus and then hauled him up on the cross, which was pretty big. I He actually swapped crosses, I think. And they did not nail him to the cross, at least not really. They simulated it pretty well. But if you looked at the cross, you could see he had these metal things to hold on to. Thankfully, I I know there are some sects in the U.S., uh, especially the Penitentes, who actually do still actually crucify people. But uh, no, that did not happen here. But all this happened, and then Jesus said the things Jesus says up on the cross. Why have you forsaken me, etc.? And they dragged him down and locked him up in a styrofoam cave and wheeled the door, the rock over the door. And we didn't have to wait the full three days. I think we waited about three minutes. And then Jesus came out and there was singing and all the speakers in the park erupted. And it, this big theme song started playing and it kept chanting, there's no God like Jehovah. There's no God like Jehovah over and over and over again. Everybody was ushered into the gift shop. Like all the staff members started like encouraging people to follow Jesus to the gift shop. Thus ended the Holy Land experience. Uh, One of the strangest things I have ever participated in Uh, As a non-religious person, this probably was more shocking to me than to someone who grew up with passion plays or even who understood what was going on in the old Charlie Brown special that had a passion play in it. But for me, um, basically watching a man tortured to death for entertainment was fairly disturbing. So... I went away from that experience realizing that not everybody in the U.S. lives the same way I do. And there are people who have a scary amount of power just because of who they are. And I'm talking about Jesus here. And I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about this actor who played Jesus. I would really like to figure out what his magic was for making him so attractive because it was a really frightening thing to be affected in such a way so quickly by an individual who you knew was acting. A place to visit. I, 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 yeah, well, you can't go to the Holy Land experience. And now that I've told that story, it's going to be in in my head all day long. But all right, switching gears, (laughs) let's talk about another place where people were tortured and died. Uh, yes, that is called Starved Rock. I, I may have talked about this before, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to talk about it again. Illinois, as I have mentioned, is kind of devoid of interesting places to see of a natural origin. I mean, you've basically, you've got Chicago up north, and you've got the Shawnee Forest with Garden of the Gods down south, and then in the middle, it's big old flatness, which has its own sort of beauty. But there's not a lot you can point to to say, hey, go see this thing. 
except one, and that one thing is Starved Rock. And it is really an amazing place to visit about an hour, an hour and a half from Chicago that will get you out in the woods and nature and a lot of weird history. Now, you might have guessed about the weird history because, after all, it's called Starved Rock. And, well, how do you starve a rock? Well, you don't starve a rock. What you do is you have a legend of two Indian tribes, and sometimes it's Europeans involved. The legend changes a bit. And one of them chases the others up to the top of this rock. What is here at Starved Rock is actually a big promontory over the Illinois River, and there's a flat spot at the top. And these people were chased up there and then placed under siege. And basically, they starved to death up there. And their bones were there for years. And anyway, that's the story. And that's where the name comes from. But what's there today is not only this big rock, but many, many miles of hiking trails through the hills, lots of caves, waterfalls, and a pretty gruesome murder scene. This was just a, on Netflix, I think it was. They were talking about the guy who was convicted of this crime, although it's unclear whether he did it. But back in the 50s, they found three middle-aged women naked and murdered in one of the most famous caves and tourist spots of Starved Rock. Basically, if you've been to Starved Rock and hiked around, you have seen this cave, probably not realizing that there was this really horrific murder there that took place in the 50s. They also built a very nice lodge about 100 years ago. So if you were looking for like a lodgy experience, you can stay in cabins or actually in the old lodge rooms. I mean, we're not talking about Timberline or Yellowstone here, but it's still pretty nice. So to me, Starved Rock, which is a state park, an Illinois state park, is well worth spending a day or even a weekend at. And the land that we just purchased is nine minutes away. So I'm going to get more and more familiar with this place. In fact, here's a promise to you. If you let me know that you're going to come visit Starved Rock and I can arrange it, I will meet you there for lunch or drinks or dinner or something like that. And we can just have a chat and I'll tell you some of the weird history I know about the area. But yeah, we got to arrange that and stuff. But yeah, if you go to Starved Rock, let me know. You can get a hold of me at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Resource recommendation. All right, why did I say it like that? Because I don't have a resource for you this week, but I have another tale. So this is actually another tale from the road I'm going to stick in here because it's pretty short. And it is also creepy since we're kind of on a creepy theme today. I was in southern New Hampshire working for a Cub Scout camp. Uh, it was basically a roving day camp, and there was a bunch of Boy Scouts, of which I was one, an adult, but not much of an adult. I was 18. And we would set up camp in these communities all around southern New Hampshire and put on a day camp for a week and then go to another town. We would go from place to place and set up these camps, and everybody had to be a bus driver because we would also drive the kids back and forth to camp. So at age 18, I'm driving this massive school bus around with all these kids without any of the license restrictions that normal school bus drivers have. Uh, yeah, good times. Anyway, we for these camps would pick a thing that we would be good at. There was a guy named Rich. He was really good at being a lifeguard, so he did all the swimming activities. I was good at the nature stuff and also archery, so I would set up 
archery for the morning and then do nature stuff in the afternoon. So one morning I'm setting up the archery, which was, you know, your basic, your targets and there'd be arrows there, your typical archery thing. And I had to be very careful about where the arrows would go if you missed the target and all that kind of stuff. So I'm setting it up very quickly. And, oh, I didn't mention this. At the time I had a lizard. I had a little anole or anole, depending on how you want to pronounce it, in a cage and I brought him with me. And I would show them to the kids, but I was pretty protective of them. I didn't want the kids to mess with them. They're fairly fragile. But at this particular camp, there was one kid who clearly wasn't fitting in. He wasn't engaging. And somehow, he wandered away from the group and ended up with me as I was setting up the archery set. And I thought, ah, all right, let's 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 throw this kid a bone. Let's, let's you know, not like usher him off to where he clearly doesn't want to be. So I invited him to come help me set up the archery kit. And really important, he was the only kid who was allowed to interact with the lizard. And so I give him the lizard and, uh, you know, he's looking at it. And I was a little nervous because the kid was a little odd and I wasn't entirely sure what he was going to do. But he was being respectful. And as he's doing this, I'm setting up the archery stuff. So I, I took out the bows and the arrows and set them down where they went. And I'm putting the targets on the big hay bale things, which is kind of a pain. And I get the first one done, and then I'm going on, and I go to the second one, and I hear, and I look, and the target I had just set up now had an arrow sticking in it. This kid had found the bow and arrows that I had set up and decided that it would be perfectly fine for him to do some target practice about three feet from where I was standing. Fortunately for me, the kid was a pretty good shot. But at that moment, I had to be very, very calm because I realized now I was dealing with someone who really didn't have any sense of boundaries or what was proper in any situation. See, Boy Scouts is an organization of rules. There are some very, very strict rules, and those rules are no stricter than at the waterfront or at any of the things where things are shot places like the rifle range or archery. He had had the talk. He knew that at no time was he to touch the bow and arrows. But because I had given him some trust, he took it all the way. I gave him an inch and he took a mile. So I very carefully stopped what I was doing and walked over and took the bow and arrow from him and gently, calmly explained to him how you should never ever fire an arrow down range when there's someone on the range and that you should always listen to the instructor or whoever's running the range for the rules because they know what's going on more than you do. And he said, oh, okay. So we survived the week without anyone getting shot. And I have always wondered what happened with that kid. And I've always wondered if I did the right thing or not. Was this a kid who needed more structure and I didn't provide enough Or did I maybe open a door for this kid to realize that not all adults are all about rules. Some of them can actually interact with him. I don't know. I don't know. It's 35 years ago now. I really hope the kid went on to have an amazing life. But every time I hear that sound of an arrow flying through the air and hitting a target, I remember that moment of how my life depended on the accuracy of a nine-year-old. Well, folks... 
thank you very, very much for all the kind words you sent me while I was out last week. I really do appreciate you guys listening. Thank you for listening to episode 125. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of George Carlin. Life is a near-death experience. <laughs>